Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios, I'm here with my engineer, Jason Harris. Our music was created for us by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rory. Today's episode is brought to you by Farmer Vincent's Fritters, the penultimate farm-to-table dining experience. Remember, kids, it takes all kinds of critters to make Farmer Vincent's Fritters. Today's guest is one of the most influential directors of all time, and his impact on movies continues to resound today. Growing up in Hollywood with a father who worked in the industry, he graduated from Hollywood High School and then attended the prestigious UCAL... Ah, let me start that over. And then, and then attended the prestigious UCLA Film School alongside his close friend Francis Ford Coppola, among others. After graduating, he and Coppola went to work for a man named Roger Corman. I think we've all heard of him. Starting out in Nudie Cuties, he eventually contributed to some of the most legendary Corman films, including one of our favorites, 1963's infamous Boris Karloff feature, The Terror. His cult movie status is evidenced in his work. Every movie that he both wrote and directed have high regard in the genre, starting in 1963 with The Terror, followed by Pit Stop, the Big Bird Cage, Coffee, Foxy Brown, Switchblade Sisters, and 1982's Sorceress. Considered by many to be his masterpiece, 1967's Spider Baby, or the maddest story ever told, has grown in popularity since being released in the 90s and has become one of the most iconic cult movies of all times. It has been cited as an influence on everyone from Toby Hooper to Rob Zombie. The list of people he has worked with is too long for this intro, but here are just a smattering of the cult movie legends he has worked with. And I'm gonna warn you right now, listeners, I know these sometimes get long. This one's a doozy. Jack Nicholson, Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., Sid Haig, Laurie Saunders, Sandra Knight, Beverly Washburn, Ingrid Steger, Peter Baumgartner, Carol Omar, Bob Miner, Christine Schmidtmer, Pat Woodell, Kitten Natavi Dodd, Quinn Redeker, Wendy Green, Carol Speed, Tita Bracci, Booker Bradshaw, Kate Murtaugh, Alan Arbus, Samuel Z. Arkoff, Antonio Fargus, Juanita Brown, Jim Wynarski, Anna Desaad, cinematographer Paul Lohman, and the one and only Tura Satana. Oh, he also gave a big break to a young lady named Ellen Bernstein. While it seems impossible to overstate his importance in the world of exploitation and cult mil- films, Perhaps his greatest contribution to the genre was to introduce the world to a young lady by the name of Pam Greer. His films have influenced countless movie makers, including Francis Ford Coppola, Quentin Tarantino, Rob Zombie, John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, and Peter Bondanovich, among many others. Please welcome the man who Coppola blatantly ripped off for the final act of Apocalypse Now, and who Quentin Tarantino rightly dubbed the Howard Hawks of exploitation, Jack Hill. How are you, Jack? I'm very well, thank you. I just want to add one thing that I think it overlooked, The Swinging Cheerleaders. It's really one of my best movies. That's a great flick. I was I wanted to mainly focus on the ones you both wrote and directed because those were such huge influence, but The Swinging Cheerleaders definitely was a genre changer. Oh, well, but you already mentioned some that I didn't really write that I just worked with the writers on, but that's okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> I know you're, you've been credited as one of the co-writers on The Terror, um, but that's among many others. I think a lot of people ended up either getting tarred with the blame or credited for that, depending on your perspective well, I, I, on it is. I got, uh, screen, I, got uh, I got writing credit on it, at least. Yeah. 
as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. With Roger Corman's production, you never know what who's being credited what for what. You know? <laughs> it depends on what he wants to pay for, I think. Yeah, I, <laughs> you could put it that way, yeah. So you grew up in Hollywood. Your father worked in the industry. Um, he was with Warner Brothers, correct? Correct. Let me just add, because uh, it's more interesting, he was with Warner Brothers when it was first National Studios back around 1925 and uh, stayed with him until the um, until the uh, consent decree put the major right. studios off and everybody. And then he worked freelance and then he went to work for Disney, where he designed all the interiors for the Captain Nemo submarine. He designed the um, Disneyland Castle among many of the other items in uh, in Disneyland. And that, that was the Sleeping Beauty's Castle, right? For, that he did there? It's called the Sleeping Beauty Castle yeah. today. Yeah. They, they didn't know what they were going to name it. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like being a kid growing up in Hollywood, especially in that magic era? Well, that would be a long story that would take a, <laughs> a lot of time. But growing up in Hollywood. That's well, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, we went to the movies a lot, obviously, but in the movies in those days, it was very, very different from, from now. You know, people would very often walk in the theater in the middle of a movie, watch the rest of that movie, a lot of trailers, <clears throat> a B movie, and then back and finally, you know, it was crazy. But uh, I can only tell you that growing up, after growing up, uh, uh, drove a, a taxi, <clears throat> the all-night shift in Hollywood, for a little while and <clears throat> solid days there. And that was an education. I can only imagine. <laughs> I want to come back to that for sure. Yeah, it gave me, it gave me lots of little snatches of dialogue that I later do <laughs> in screenplays. We're going to revisit the taxi days in just a minute. Um, uh -huh. I want to go back to the, the movie houses. I know you've cited the movies of the 40s, a lot of the noirs and gangster films as being probably your main influence. Were you one of those all-day theater kids where you'd go in in the morning and just stay all day and watch the same movies and trailers over and over, newsreels? No, 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 I never was. Although, <clears throat> although I had friends who did the, the Hitching Post Theater was on Hollywood Boulevard and they played all Westerns. And my my uh, my dad would uh, take me down there on Saturdays to watch everything. I think my parents wanted to get me out of the house. <clears throat> <laughs> but we would watch the, all the Western movies and uh, and they had, of course, the, uh, the serials, you know, went mm -hmm. Captain Marvel and this kind of stuff. What, yes. were, what were what was that serial you just mentioned? Captain Marvel, and then oh. they, they had yeah. the Lone Ranger, and they had a bunch of other stuff like that. That yeah, I grew up on on uh, you know mostly the Warner Brothers movies of the forties, um, because that was the most kind of influence on me, if you want to put it that way, because they had to work on low budgets, and they in order to compete with the with the real big flashy studios like MGM and and, and Fox they would uh, have to have ideas that you couldn't it was almost like exploitation movies in a way you know they had they had to use they didn't have the money for big production so they had to have stronger ideas that the big companies were afraid to touch you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah i, mean, I imagine at that time too they were competing you hit like mgm with the big blockbuster musicals going on everywhere uh paramount um you know early on had the marx brothers uh, and so the comedies and musicals were were really the big sellers. So I'm sure that probably put Warner Brothers in a tight spot since they weren't doing a ton of those at the time. 
Yeah, well, they worked in a lower budget, but they had they had actors like they had Bogart and Cagney and Virginia Mayo. MGM had Robert Taylor. You know, that's <laughs> different. Yeah, yeah. Did, so when you were when you were watching these movies, you were seeing what your dad was doing. What were you interested in? What your dad was doing, or were you like most kids and like, yeah, my dad's got a job doing something. I don't know exactly what. No, I know what he did, but I didn't really know all that much about it. But once in a while, he'd bring me a script. He'd bring a script to him and let me read it. And so I, I was very familiar with screenplay layouts and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Was move, was making movies something you were interested in at an early age then? Well, yes and no. I, I, I was I was raised, uh, my mother was a music teacher. And so I was raised to be a musician. And that's what I thought I was going to be. But I had a little Bell and Howell eight millimeter sportster and I made movies and I edited them and did this just for just for fun. And I even got some friends from, from friends together to do little plots and this kind of stuff. So I was very familiar with what a camera does. <clears throat> so your mother taught music. What instruments did you learn to play? Oh, I learned violin and piano in the beginning. And then later when I was in high school, I took up French horn. Oh, wow. And I played that uh, for a long time. I did at UCLA, I played in the orchestra there and I played, I played all those instruments. And, and then, uh, but then later I took up, <clears throat> this is a trick on the Hungarian cymbalum, which is hung, Hungarian music. And it's like, a, it's like you're looking at the inside of a piano, but there's no keyboard. You play with mallets on the strings. Okay. And, uh, and eventually I got very good at it and I did a lot of studio recording. I did Dr. Zhivago. You hear me very clearly on there when you go in the supermarket. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the brothers Karamazov, they even issued a, a um, uh, what do they call the little discs? Uh, uh -huh. The soundtracks for it? Me playing the title song or not the title song, but the song from the movie that I did. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's, do you still play today? No, I don't really. I mean, it's sitting right over the, sitting right over there, but I haven't touched it for a while. Yeah, I, I don't know quite what to do with that. I'm, I'm too busy working on other stuff right now. Sure, <laughs> sure. So you drove a taxi in Hollywood at nights. What was that? How how old were you when you started doing that? Oh gosh, let me see. I must have been uh, twenty three, maybe something like that. Uh, okay. Probably, maybe a little. Older, I, I'm not. I don't really remember the the dates. Okay. So like mid fifties, fifty. Let me see. It was. I remember. It was fifty one. Was the uh, okay one year? Yeah, didn't do it for a very long time, but uh, just long, just long enough to really, <laughs> you know, really know what was going on at night in Hollywood. Yeah. So what was going on at night in Hollywood in I, the fifties? You don't want to hear about. It. <laughs> I absolutely do. <laughs> Uh, but only I, if you're comfortable talking about it. <laughs> no, the, the, the only the only weird thing I want to mention is like you know, the proposition by a gay guy and this kind of stuff offered mm -hmm. me money, you know. Sure. <laughs> and then there never, was, never tempted. Huh? Never yeah, tempted. No, no, okay. I, I, that one passed. <laughs> so you uh, you you were. Growing up around all of this, obviously, you're going to the movies, loving them. You were reading screenplays that your dad would bring home, starting to get a taste of the business. Um, you were at Hollywood High School with, I'm sure, countless other celebrity kids and um, and kind of getting to, to know a little bit more about the business as you grow into adulthood and going to film school. 
was it around high school when you started putting your eye on, okay, I think this is the trajectory I'm going to follow? No, no, it never occurred to me. I was really planning to be a musician. And, Still uh, then, okay. Yeah, and I majored in, in, in music in, uh, in, at the university. Mm -hmm. And when I, uh, I got into a writing class at UCLA, I was majoring in music, but uh, uh, I took a, a cinema as a, as a minor because I, um, I got into a writing class and they encouraged me. And so I got to directing a student film and then another student film. And uh, after that, I began making movies instead of making music. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, it was one of those, did, did at any point when you were started making movies and were starting to kind of make a name for yourself and get some work, did you look back and think, you know, maybe I want to go back to music? No, 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 never did. No, the music business was really, really, really tough uh, to make a living in those days, mm -hmm. you know, unless, because um, <clears throat> unless you had a contract, uh, it was, it was tough. But, but I did, you know, quite a bit of recording, as I, as I said, which uh, when I was in school helped me put my way through school. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So you come out of school and you and Coppola go to work for Corman. Um, it's, now, did you go together or was it, did, I, I've oh, read a couple oh, different oh, things. Maybe Coppola oh, brought Roger, you in. Roger used to check with the cinema department there when he wanted to, to add, when he wanted to bring somebody in, needed an employee, you know, and, uh, and, and uh, so Francis was very highly recommended. So he hired Francis and Francis, uh, brought me in as a cameraman. I was doing a lot of camera work at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I uh, started doing other stuff. And then when Francis very soon went on to bigger and better things with major studios, because mm -hmm. he wrote very, very good screenplay, as we know, Patton. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then I took up with Roger for a while and uh, doing all kinds of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was... It, I'm doing research for you there there it's like you're noted as doing a little thing on so many movies and i'm sure that many of them just go unnoticed and things that aren't even you aren't even credited for that people don't even know about um when you were with corman what could you take a guess how many different projects you worked on with him i guess i don't know six seven or eight maybe something like that mm -hmm. but you're asking me like little things that uh, I did a lot of what we called inserts, you know, little mm -hmm. things that, uh, that were the, the director was too busy to do little things. And one of them, one of them I did, I got, um, I had a, a, a shot where this guy is on standing on the edge of a cliff and a hawk comes down out of the sky and gouges out his eyes. Now that was the assignment, right? <laughs> and I managed to do it and the scene got applause in the theater. So some of my little moments, people actually clapped for, you know. That's fair. What movie was that for? That was The Terror. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I knew, I know the answer to some of these questions I'm asking. I just like to hear you say them. <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of little things. Like there's another scene in The Terror that I had to do, like, like uh, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to walk into quicksand in a second, right? And he stops. Somebody stops him, I think, and he throws a rock and the rock hits the ground and slowly settles into the ground. That sounds easy, isn't it? But you know, we had to go through to get something like that. I did it in my backyard with a net. <laughs> Is that how you ended up getting that effect? 
<laughs> That's yeah. you, you ended up just net net lowering it. Yeah, well then yeah, and lowering it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff you know that that, that I did. I had to figure out how to do. Well, I I, I can't pass up talking about the terror it's a movie that i'm slightly yeah. obsessed with um it's it's kind of famous for first off it's it's one of those typical corman hey Karloff still owes me some time and we've still got this set let's go shoot some scenes of him and then build a movie around that this is probably the the one that is the most famous or infamous depending on your look on it um the of course i think everybody's favorite scene is dick miller giving the entire plot spilling it out <laughs> in that one moment near the end. <laughs> yeah, that was a, well, let me just make a comment. First of all, about Boris Karloff. When I worked with Boris Karloff for a little while later, later on, and I asked him about Roger Corman, and he said, I don't want to hear that man's name in my presence. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was the experience he'd had from the terror. Yeah. I know yeah. at that point he was very sick with emphysema, um, had to had to sit a lot. Um, and it, it, of course, in the in the terror, that's evidenced. Um, I think he's got maybe three scenes where he's walking across the room or something. As aside from that, what was your experience with him, Boris? Yeah, well, it's a, just wonderful. I mean, he was such a great guy, you know. And he was he was had a, a tank. He had to breathe oxygen from, mm -hmm. and uh, he would sit, and then he would get up. He would get up and do an action scene, and come back and sit down and put on that breather again mm -hmm. and he just but he was a trooper you know he wanted to do everything he got his lines he knew how to do everything he had great great guy just wonderful what was it like for you as you know the movie kid who grew up watching people like Karloff that now you're standing next to him and working with him on a project yeah well that was that was still you know the, that's, the only unfortunate thing is that in those days, of course, we didn't have access to all the old movies, you know, that nowadays we all know, we've all seen Boris Karloff in the, playing, uh, playing a Chinese detective, you know, this kind of stuff. If I had only known about those things, I would have had so, so much fun asking him about it, you know, like, yeah, he played, uh, uh, what's the Chinese? It was... Uh, um because uh, Peter Laurie played him too. Um, yeah, yeah, Peter oh, Laurie played. He played Brian Japanese detective. <laughs> yeah. Was that Moto? Was that Mr. Moto that Peter Laurie yeah, played? Peter yeah, Laurie. okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I can't remember for Karloff. I know the movie you're talking about, but I can't remember the name yeah. of the detective on that. Well, Charlie Chan. Yeah, he played Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu, yes. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. All right. With, um, with Myrna Loy playing his daughter, his evil yeah. daughter. Yeah, <laughs> my, my mother went went to school with with Myrna Lloyd. Actually, her name I think was Williamson, and she said she was she, she was planning and getting all these Oriental roles. So she picked the name Lloyd, so it would sound more like she was a real thing. Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I had no idea on that. Um, I I'm looking at my notes again. There's just sorry, so much. No, so you did you did work. Um, on a film, another great Corman film, and that was Dementia 13. And that's when you worked on with Coppola again. What was your experience like on that set? Uh, it, it's indescribable. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the set, Francis shot the picture, most of the picture in, in Ireland. He put he was a, a genius at, at putting together funding, you know, on promises. And uh, I 
some talent that I never had. And he got this thing together and he wrote the script and, and shot. And when the picture came back in Roger Corman's office and when Roger first saw the picture assembled, he booked his pencil and threw it at the screen because there was so many holes in it, you know, things, mm -hmm. missing stuff that Francis had not shot. So uh, I was assigned to try to figure out how to, uh, to do a lot of the filling in. And then when Francis came back, <clears throat> Uh, he shot, he directed some scenes that needed to be done. Just for a few examples, there was a scene, there's an underwater scene where the girl dives down underwater and sees something. That was shot in my father's swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. What's that experience like when you are brought in to do something like that? You know, we need some potholes filled. Were you in contact with Francis during that? Were you doing that in a bubble and then you handed him the finished project to work with? No, Francis was off doing doing other things, but he he, he did come back to to direct a couple of uh, some mm -hmm. scenes that need to be done. And uh, but aside from that, I had very little contact with him at, at all. Uh, although later on, when he was trying to to get, uh, he had a project that he wanted to become director on, and he needed to show something that he that he could direct. So, um, uh, Dementia Thirteen. The finished picture was so short, I had to add about 15 minutes to it to make it saleable in the theaters, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I had to, he asked me if I could cut that part out so that he could show the picture as his work as a director. That's basically pretty much the only contact where I had with him on that, on that, <laughs> on <project>. that one. <laughs> and I was out to do that, yeah. Is that intimidating? <laughs> that, that picture is just full of little inserts that, that I put in that make it all kind of go together. Then it is worked. Is that intimidating when they hand you not only another director's work, but a director that you know and are friends with, and they say, hey, fix this? No, 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 it wasn't like that at all. It's just stuff that um, it's, I imagine that it's probably a procedure that there's a lot more of that going on than we're, than we're aware of. <laughs> I'm, I, yeah. I, <laughs> if you you look at any major blockbuster, check out the second unit credits, and you can see <laughs> a lot of that. Yeah, but with Roger, probably by multiple to <laughs> hour of twelve. You know. he's, I think he's got a, a warehouse full of just stock footage of things that he shot over time that he can just plug in. <laughs> Actually, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. You've described working for Roger Corman as an emotional roller coaster. What do you mean by that? Did I, what did I describe that? Uh, that was, I found that in an article from. Oh, okay. That was uh, an article in a, a thing called Dazed. Um, okay. All right. said yeah, it well, in that. I wouldn't go so far as to say roller coaster, but it was certainly an up and down situation. <laughs> well, people working for him, you know, were like viciously come competitive with each other to get Roger's favor. So he would sign them to something. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of that that was very difficult to deal with. And also, um, uh, he, he didn't really appreciate quite often the difficulties that I was able to solve. Uh, and that kind of, you know, felt kind of bad about that sometimes. But, you know, hey, how do you mean? <clears throat> uh, well, like I was a couple of the ones that I was just explaining, you know, and then uh, there were some others that I don't I don't really recall. Uh, but um, he he would ask it. Well, there was one picture. Uh, they they wanted it was a motorcycle gang movie, 
Okay, and the, the, it's a, a night scene and the, uh, they say, they see a rabbit running at night. And then he needed a shot of a rabbit running at night. Now, you know, how are we gonna get this? You know, I mean, I tried looking at it, tried to, uh, tried to get a shot of a jackrabbit getting up at five o'clock in the morning and jackrabbits, they're either holding still, you can't see them or else they're going like that. Right. So I finally had to get a, um, I finally had to get a uh, an animal wrang wrangler that I used many times. You know, I told you about the hawk coming down. I had this right. guy who had to do things, and he got me um, he got me a, a rabbit that I could use and and actually get the rabbit to run. All it took on screen was like a couple of seconds, but that's the only way I could do it. You know, that was a little a little tricky. Yeah. Yeah. So you just you were feeling a little underappreciated then with with some of those things the time you took put into it. Yeah, well, I'm bringing this up kind of in a way to show you the competitiveness at that time that Monty Hellman was working on the yes, picture. and uh, he was directing stuff that I no let me see this is a motorcycle but he was editing he was working on editing in the picture, and I had shot. Uh, several times trying to get uh, uh, jackrabbit, which I couldn't, couldn't do. And then when I got to Animal Wrangler, we had to, the, um, to try to get the rabbit, he had to run. I had to run the camera while I yelled at the rabbit and yelled it and tried to distract the rabbit's attention. And they finally had to jump in and almost kick the rabbit and get out of the way so I could get the rabbit to run. Okay, so when back in the editing room, uh, Monty Hillman, Roger wanted to see the shot and Monty Hillman showed him everything except the one where the rabbit actually ran. So, and, and ran, so that he could say, this is no good, this is no good, this is no good. Wow. And so I had to tell Roger, wait a minute, this, he didn't show you the one where the rabbit ran. So Roger looked at it and thought it worked fine. But this is the kind of stuff that, that, wow. that you're talking about emotional roller coaster. This yeah. is stuff that happened working for Roger. Yeah. I was I literally the next thing I wanted to ask you about because it was around the time was Monty Hellman and your experience working with him. <laughs> it was not good. It was not good. That's just one example. Another yeah. example was uh, you, oh, I, I don't want to badmouth the guy. He just died. I'm sorry. I said I don't want to badmouth him too much. He just sure, died. yeah, yeah. We lost him last day, this past yeah, he, April. Yeah, one of the people I'm I'm happy to outlive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> On my list. So, along with him, though, there were a lot of people at that time working in films, kind of starting to kickstart the exploitation genre. We've got <laughs> um, Russ Meyer, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Were you aware of what was happening, or were they so far under the radar at that time you didn't really know that was going on? Um, I, I didn't really see uh, any any of those films. I preferred to go and, and watch a French horror movie, you know, or something. <laughs> uh, but I just aware that there were people doing that. Yeah, what's his name? The guy who did all the sex movies, um, Russ Meyer. Yeah, Russ Meyer was aware mm -hmm. of it, but I never saw any of his films. Uh, I just didn't go to those kind of movies. Mm -hmm. to tell you the truth, I mean, I was working on them. <laughs> <laughs> Once you see the sausage made, you don't want to eat it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. And it was uh, with a great German statesman who said, uh, he said, 
laws are like sausages. It's best not to see how they are made. Right. <laughs> Same thing goes for movies. Same with exploitation films. <laughs> right. right yeah. uh, you did, you'd worked with Jack Nicholson as well on The Terror. And you. I've noted several places where you've talked about how you thought initially he was terrible and, as an actor until you saw him in Little Shop. And I've heard that from other people. Yeah. Uh, Dick, Dick Miller said he, he he always thought Jack Nicholson was going to be a writer because he sure couldn't, couldn't hack it as an actor sort of thing. What what was it you saw? What was the difference you saw between The Terror and then Little Shop? What was the difference you saw in him as an actor there that changed your opinion? All right. The main, the main well, the difference was, was I, I can't describe the difference. I can tell you the cause of it. Uh, when he was doing The Terror, he just hated it. And... And Francis was so annoyed with him at the time. And he just took, he's just, everything was a throwaway, it seemed to me, with him. And uh, so I didn't think he was a very good actor. But right. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He just wasn't very good in that movie. But that's, uh, yeah, be wrong about that. You know, it's just my, my impression. Yeah. And looking, the Terror itself has seven directors credited for it. Um, not They didn't get on screen credits, but um, they've got you down uh, as just an uncredited director, Monty Hellman for a few days, Jack Cale for one day, Francis Ford Coppola, three or four days is how they have him registered there. It's just kind of scattershot. How does a project like that work when you've got all these different hands in the pie? Uh how does it work? <laughs> it, doesn't. it doesn't. I mean, the end product kind of shows that, but <laughs> ultimately things just kind of, you just work on it. But I'll tell you an anecdote about that one. Well, I'll tell you the story, what, what happened with it. Um, uh, Roger shot this, the scenes with, with Boris Karloff and he shot some other stuff with it. And uh, it wasn't finished. It, and uh, Francis, uh, wrote a script to go with, who, I can't think of the name of the writer who wrote the original script. He was an actor that uh, worked a lot and he wrote the script. And anyway, I have a co-credit with him. I can't remember his name right now. But um, Francis wrote a script. And, Leo, uh, Leo Gordon? Leo Gordon, yeah. yeah. He, he had written the original thing. And Francis took, the, took what was shot and wrote a, a whole new script to go with it, to make use of it. <clears throat> which was which was okay, and we shot a whole lot of uh, material up at around Big Sur in California. There with beautiful forest scenes and, and things like that. And uh, unfortunately, what he shot nights he shot scenes day for night, but didn't tell the cameraman that it was supposed to be night. So a whole major part of that was unusable. So I was given the assignment to write new scenes that would put the picture together. And the story didn't make any sense, you know? Yeah. The story was just totally impossible. So I wrote uh, a new script that, that, that which Monty Hillman directed most of. And uh, it still didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> Movie like that doesn't really have to, <laughs> and it did okay. It did fine. Uh, I think yeah. partially because uh, Ronnie Stein wrote this wonderful musical score for it, which was really good. It is an incredible score. Yeah, he yeah. wrote. He did my Spider Baby as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, oh, Spider Baby. I mean, I want to talk about Mondo Keyhole just a little bit. I know you didn't have a lot to do with it other than some vignette work, uh, but um, let, let, let's let's talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about Mondo Keyhole, uh, and then we can jump to Spider Baby, which I I could talk about for three hours, but <laughs> very, very little, very little about the fun thing about it was it gave me an opportunity to to kind of play with the camera and do a lot of interesting things. That mm -hmm. yeah, so that was that was the main thing was for me. And I was just trying to make a living, you know. I worked yeah. with Lamb. He was uh he was uh John Lamb he did all these nudist films and things like that. And, the nudie cuties. Not, or the uh, nudist colony ones. Nudist colony, yeah. Yeah. In those days, the only way you could do real nudist, this was before, you know, I mean, God, nobody could predict what you see nowadays. On right. TV, right. But um, the only way you could do that was it was official. Nudism was like, almost like had a, had a religious uh, authority, you know, it was like a cult, you know, nature, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he shot, uh, I did the camera work, these, these nudist films, which were sold in mail order. Mm -hmm. And um, so he decided we wanted to make a whole feature film because the, uh, the Swedes had come out with this, uh, I am curious, yeah, which was the first and it kind of broke the barrier, you know, now you mm -hmm. could show bare breasts on the screen, which before you'd get arrested for. Right. So, so we did this put together, put together a movie from, from a lot of the stuff that he shot and a lot of new stuff. And uh, it was called the, the Raw Ones, the title. Are you familiar with this? I am. When we opened it in, in the theater, we were all worried, worried that we were gonna get arrested. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that that whole era was was very like um, they had the era of the nudie cuties that kind of came on the tail end of the nudist colony ones that were just dumb movies. Uh, just a, a, you look for an excuse to show breasts and things. Um, and where we with Mondo Keyhole, we've got actually a, an actual plot running through that as well, which was a little different from what was going on in a lot of those the nudie cuties, of course. I tried to make it kind of like an art film in a way, you know. Yeah. You could, you could, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, you, you mentioned Spider Baby, and we we got to get to it. Um, I'll tell you right now, this movie. Uh, I don't even know for how many years. My son is twenty three now. We every Halloween watch Spider Baby together uh, really? for as long as I can remember. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, I, of course, Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, it was near the end of his career. Um, one of his last films, I think he did seven or eight more after that. What was your experience with Lon Chaney Jr.? Just, just great. Again, I just, today, I feel so sorry that I wasn't more aware of some of the earlier things that he'd done, you know, he, he played in, in uh, Lenny, you know, the and, great Lenny to Burgess Meredith. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's really great stuff that he did. So I, I've always kind of regretted that I didn't know that that I could have talked him to him about some of those things. Mm -hmm. you know, asked him, but he was just really, really, really great. He just he liked the script. He liked the girls. He liked. Uh, he just took it very seriously. He wanted to do something, do his best work. He didn't want to throw it away. You know. He brings so much humanity to that film in a role that. 
I honestly think anybody else in it would not work. Uh, there was something about his vulnerability in that, and it almost felt personal um, to me a little bit to him, uh, the way he he comes across. I know I've I've heard interviews. Um, I heard an interview with Janet Ann Gallo, who played the little girl and uh, goes to Frankenstein, and she was in it with him. And he and his wife actually tried to adopt her because, oh, excuse me, I'm kicking my camera around here, uh, tried to adopt her uh, because of uh, uh, her family was just running around all the, all the time. Uh, and he wanted to bring her into his family. Of course, her mom and dad were like, I don't think so. But uh, he just loved kids and uh, her, her memories of him were great. And that, I think, is reflected in his performance in that film. Well, he, um, let me put it this way. Um, he really fell in love with, 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 with the girls. It just, especially Beverly Washburn. Mm -hmm. And the scene when he's, when he's explaining to the girls that something's going to happen, right? And blah, blah. And Beverly's there. She would, Beverly was the actress I have known could cry like that, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> really get into a scene. And uh, that's the only time that he wanted to actually see any of the film while we were shooting. He came to watch the rushes. He wanted to see her because he he couldn't watch her when he was doing the scene, and he wanted to see her. And he said, he said, "Can you imagine that that wouldn't it be if you could see her through the whole scene? You know." Mm -hmm. Instead of just cutting back and forth, which it right. was, that's how impressed he was with her. Wow. Yeah, he wanted to do everything the best he could. <clears throat> the only problem we had with him was, uh, uh, I, th I thought he, he was on the wagon. You know, he was a very heavy, heavy drinker. And he wanted, yeah. he wanted to make sure he was very sober with us. And there was one time when we had forgotten something. And in the afternoon, we, we needed to go back and do a little pickup from him. And he was really kind of nervous about it and found out later that I only found out later that he would have an orange every afternoon that mm -hmm. was spiked with vodka. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned that from Sid Haig. Wow. <laughs> well, I knew I knew he was uh, he was known to, to tittle a little, but that is uh, I never heard that one. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A little bit of trivia there for the masses. For the, for history. My son wants to know this. This comes directly from my son. The outfit that Sid wears to dinner in that. He wants to know if you know the whereabouts of that. <laughs> he thinks it should be in the Smithsonian. It was called a Buster Brown. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. My uh, uh, they just found it in in a in a in a wardrobe su supply place. It's such a great visual gag when he comes out of the dumbwaiter in that. I, it's so great. <laughs> well, that, that, that movie's just, it really goes over the top in so many ways. And, and that's why when it was first made, it, it, people couldn't, couldn't quite get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, uh, so when you, so you finished it, it, you ended up not getting a copyright on it. And uh, it wasn't until the, I think the nineties when you did a reissue and added some uh, unused footage to it that you were able to get it copywritten. And that also brought with it kind of a resurgence for it. Um, I don't think people at the time knew its influences on people. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Toby, Toby Hooper 
cite Spider Baby as one of his biggest influences for he making actually that said film. That? Yeah, it just this that was a mistake. He had never even seen it. Uh, from what I've read, he cited it. Oh, so, really? um, but you know, it's the internet. <laughs> I try and I try and second and third source stuff. But I, I once met him, but he never mentioned that. <clears throat> hmm. Well, it could be bullshit. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure on that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well. I did read uh, Quinn Redeker on set, spent a lot of time in Cheney's trailer with them, just talking to him yeah. about the old days and stuff. Yeah. Um, did you get the sense that Cheney was was flattered by that, that kind of attention? I, I never had any thought about that at all. I didn't no. even know. It was, uh, you know, when you're shooting a picture, you're really, really busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's time for anything else but focusing on what you're doing i definitely for you i consider you uh, one of the true auteurs uh someone who is is you're getting your fingers in every part of it you can wanting to make sure that you're creating the final product as you've envisioned it is that a correct read on my part i've been called a grunge auteur a, a grunge auteur <laughs> yeah I, I like that one, i yeah. like that yeah i like that too I, i'm working on a, i'm working on a uh on my memoirs at the, at the moment i got a call from a um, literary agent who was very encouraging and asked me if i could do it so i'm, I'm working on that right now and i thought i'd use that in the title but anyway anyway to go back to to your to your question about um in that particular in, instance i had to write the script had to direct it and then I edited it, including the sound effects. So um, that's much more than most people usually do with them. Yeah. Yeah. So it kept me busy for a while. I had read that producers actually made you cut a scene where uh, Emily takes Schlocker's cigar and starts smoking it. The producers yeah. thought that was too far. I don't know what they thought. They just didn't like it. They thought it was, I don't know. Yeah, they thought it was too weird, I guess. Huh. That's uh, too bad. The actress, <laughs> of all the other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought I thought it was kind of the actresses, the, the players loved it. What's the actress's name? I can't remember her name right now. Uh, for for which one? Yeah, on, on Emily. She was a star at the time. Say I'm sorry, say it one more time. That broke up just a hair. Who played that character on Emily? What, what oh, okay. Oh, that was Carol Omart. Carol Omar, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Her name right, right at this moment. Yeah, she thought that was that was funny. <laughs> so, she, she had a great, she had a great time. By the way, a wonderful time. That's uh, it shows. It shows a lot in that film. I think you can kind of tell that everybody's given a hundred percent and and yeah. really having fun with it. Yeah, they, that's true. Yeah, that's great. Um, that was your first film with Sid Haig, who you continued to work with from that point on. What what was your friendship like with My him? first film with Sid Haig was my student film, student film at UCLA. Oh, was that the host? Yeah. yeah. The host. Okay. Yeah. Let me make one comment so we don't forget as we go by. Mantan Moreland, working with Mantan Moreland. He was such a great guy and he was so happy to be working because the civil rights movement at that time was going strong and it virtually put an end to his career because, because black character actors were all, you know, it was, it was no longer proper to use black actors in these menial roles. Mm -hmm. And he was so, he, he felt so bitter about it because he didn't feel his comedy was, was demeaning, you know? And he said like acting scared, 
that's, you know, he didn't find anything demeaning about that. And, you know, I wanted to have him in this film playing, and I wanted to- One of those characters. Put an end, right, yeah. 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 Max scared it and have him killed, see? That was kind of a little thing, little conceit I had about it. Going back to Sid Haig, you worked with him on your student film. He ends up in so many of your movies. Obviously, you guys got along, had a friendship. What was that friendship like? Hey, guys, what'd you think about that? Jack Hill is one of the absolute greats, a legend of cult film. This is only part one. Part two will be out in a couple of weeks. We're starting to get some feedback on this. I really appreciate anything you'd like to say about the podcast. Of course, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter, but I'm not very good on that. Under the Walter Paisley Movie House, feel free to join our page, join our group on Facebook. Let people know about the podcast. We'd love the word to get out. There's a lot of cult fans out there, and I know that uh, they'd like to hear some of these interviews. As always, if you're out and about, please be sure to take care of your servers. Tip them well, because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we did not piss on hospitality. See you in a couple weeks.